Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The program has saved the nation. This is ADH-TV, and I'm David Flynn. And I'm absolutely delighted today to introduce our special guest, who is a highly qualified professor of constitutional law, George Williams, who is also the deputy vice chancellor of the University of New South Wales. And as I say, he's a very distinguished professor of constitutional law. And this is, in fact, our third debate on the Republic, which I'll come to in a moment. But I do remember that we both appeared before the full High Court in, uh, I think it was in 1997, in a leading case brought by David Longy, the former Prime Minister of New Zealand, against the ABC. And it was in an area of constitutional law which uh, Professor Williams would know more about than I. And it was, uh, I was uh, presenting the, the uh, Amicus Curiae, the friend of the court brief on behalf of the press council. And Professor Williams was speaking for the Media and Arts Alliance, I think. And That's correct. Uh, yes, yeah. and it was on political free speech. Well, uh, and, and uh, I remember we had three debate. This is our third debate. The first was at the federal parliament where we, we were both invited to speak by the clerk of the house. And... I was looking at that today, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Our second is very interesting because that was in 2009, and we were at the Trades Hall, and Professor Williams was appearing with Matt Thistlethwaite, who is now the uh, Assistant Minister for the Republic, which seems very much appropriate. and. Uh, and this is our third debate, and perhaps one day we'll have, perhaps not in the near future, we'll have uh, a, uh, another debate. But when, uh, when Professor Williams was speaking at the 1996 debate in the federal parliament, I remember, George, that you said, and it, you said it was uh, highly relevant at the time it was organized, but that when it finally came, 
you said it wasn't so relevant, and you were right there, because I think the Senate was making some problem about passing the referendum bill because they didn't like the free vote, the free postal vote that the government was having. And you said it would be, uh, it was as relevant perhaps as the Visigoths debating whether the Senate at Rome should be elected or not. And I th afterwards you pointed out that you were sufficiently courteous enough not to say the Vandals rather than the Visigoths. But you, uh, you said that and I'm wondering, uh, I'm reminded of something that uh, Graham Richardson said. Graham Richardson said that uh, some years ago that the Republic, if it isn't dead and buried, is comatose. And I'm wondering, George, whether you think we will be seeing within a reasonable time a second referendum on the Republic. I think there's every chance we will, but only if the voice referendum succeeds this year. I think that's the key. I think if the voice referendum succeeds, and of course just today um, the bill has gone through Parliament for the next referendum Australia will hold, the first since 1999, uh, that referendum may be held in October. If it passes, I think the government will think, yes, uh, it's time to try the Republic, not in this term of government, but in the next term. If, on the other hand, the voice fails, I think it's quite a likely chance the government will say we won't bring on the Republic. We've got burnt by that. It's unlikely they would use their political capital twice. So the voice, I think, is the key to seeing whether we do go to that second vote. If the voice succeeds, I think... Um, we have, as you say, the Assistant Minister for the Republic, Matt Thistlethwaite. We have a government that is full of committed Republicans, a government who I think would be buoyed by a victory on the voice. And everything to me says the timing is that we would head to another referendum in about three or so years' time, this time again on the Republic. Yes, uh, they seem to have hitched it very much. Uh, they've, uh, I, I think what you're saying is very true, that if they failed in the voice or if they succeeded in the voice, I would say succeeded very well, rather than just scraped in, then they'd be tempted to go ahead with the Republican referendum. They'd probably think the time was right. Uh, I've always felt, and I've written in opinion pieces, that I don't think the voice will get up. But that's my view. I may be wrong, but I, I, I see from what happened in 1999 that the voice probably won't get up. But anyway, that, that is probably, I think, a correct statement. Uh, I Well, I think 1999 shows you right just how difficult it is to win these referendums. And it's not just 1999, but we haven't had a successful referendum of any kind since 1977. So it's 46 years since Australians voted yes to anything. And... Uh, I mean, I'm a supporter of The Voice, but I recognise just how hard it is to have Australians to support something like this. History is against them, given those polls, but I think this has a good, as good a chance as any. So we'll see. Yes. I think there's a view which hasn't been very openly expressed in government circles, but I suspect there may be a view that with young people coming through a different form of education, and with a large amount of immigration, there may be a view in the government that uh, the carefulness that Australians had, the suspicions that they've had about referendums has disappeared and the, this is a new situation. Do you think that's true? I think, 
I think there's a lot to say we shouldn't read too much into history because it has been more than a generation, so nearly a quarter of a century since we had the last vote. There aren't many people, particularly young people, have had any knowledge of referendums. They don't come with any baggage uh, or even any sense of expectation. In fact, if they can think of any recent national vote that might be akin to this, it would be the same-sex marriage plebiscite, which, of course, passed very strongly. So I think especially for younger people, yes, they will come to this afresh. And in fact, the polling is showing very strong support amongst that cohort. And it's not just that, it's the fact that the world has changed so much. Um, this is our first social media referendum, which again would have a big impact on any republic. And we're yet to see what impact that will have. And it's not just the written word, not just about the newspapers and television, but most of the action actually occurs through these user-generated forums on social media. When, uh, when you look at the polling, I wonder whether there's much difference from 1999. We had a victory, which was 45-55, uh, but when you added, uh, naturally, of course, we take all the advantages we can in relation to figures. If you add those who didn't vote and those who voted informally, the yes case is coming up close to 60%. And that, uh, the, the, the no case rather is coming up to 60%. The yes case was, uh, or the yes vote was concentrated very much in the inner city electorates. And uh, I suspect that too may well be repeated again uh, one, of the, one of the great problems, I think, in changing the Constitution is that it was deliberately set with safeguards. Do, do, you, do you have any objection in principle to the safeguards in the Constitution? That is a referendum rather than uh, a, a, a special majority of politicians, as it is in many countries, as I think it is in Barbados. As, and uh, having a referendum, and in Australia having to pass in four states, having to pass in a majority of states. Do you, would you ha suggest that that should be different? No, I don't think so. I think um, I actually like the fact that constitutional change has such a strong popular element. Uh, it is a key safeguard, as you say, and not just that you need the people, but actually you need the smaller states to fall into line as well. It reflects both our democratic character and our federal character as a nation. And so I'm a, I'm a believer in having referendums for these types of changes. My frustration is we've often done so poorly in navigating it. And I think that's not an issue with the people. It's an issue often with our politicians who've put poor proposals, failed to sell them. And you can compare that, for example, the state referendums, which have overwhelmingly passed. So it's not as if the Australian people are innately voting no. They vote yes consistently to state referendums on fixed four-year terms, all sorts of things, but no to national votes. And that points to, I think, failures in national leadership. And with The Voice, the question will be, have they got the leadership right this time? And the same for a republic. Can they actually convince people to support something? I thought that the conduct of the referendum, just the referendum process in 1999, by John Howard and Nick Minchin, was impeccable. Right from the convention onwards. And they were very fair to both sides. We were at a great disadvantage it was the fact that uh, we didn't have the wealth that the Republicans had, and also almost all of the mainstream media was against us. And uh, they not only 
were against us in their editorials, they were against us in the way in which they presented the news. That was our impression. Uh, I don't think you can change the fact that one side is wealthier than the other. That's just one of those facts of life that you've got to live with. But I do think that the present government has failed in relation to ensuring that there is a very fair and balanced approach for the referendum. In the present referendum, the government hasn't really given equality to both sides. For example, one side has, uh, has tax deductibility and the other doesn't have it. And uh, I, uh, the government, I think, very foolishly uh, signaled that they were going to stop the yes-no booklet, which was, I think, a serious mistake. And uh, they're now uh, releasing advertisements which are supposed to be information advertisements, but they look very much like yes case advertisements, whereas the information advertisements released by the Howard government were uh, monitored by a very special committee. And although they were boring, they were strictly information ones. They, they mainly consisted of a a, a road intersection, an intersection, and if you went to the left, you went to one side, if you went to the right, you went to the other. It was, the, the, their information wasn't very good, but it certainly wasn't a disguised yes case. Am I fair in, say, contrasting the Howard government's, I think, impartiality and that of the present government? I think you're being a bit tough, David. Um, I think there is some truth in what you say, but I disagree on a few things. And I suppose, firstly, I'd say that you're right, of course, in 1999, that you had a lot of raid against you, including media and the like. But I think also, as referendum history shows, that can be turned to advantage, as the no case did so successfully back then. And very often, Australians um, are worried about voting for something where they see their politicians lining up, the media lining up, a good example is the 1967 referendum, not the Indigenous one, but the other proposal, which would have cut the link between the mm. Senate being basically half the size of the House of Representatives. Every major party, every newspaper supported it, and that only made people more worried. So the fact that you've got powerful forces, elite forces, if you like, on a yes case doesn't necessarily mean it wins. There are many examples uh, where it hasn't. But in terms of the fairness to the campaign, um, yeah, I, I think... Um, <clears throat> It was the honourable thing that John Howard did in putting this to the people. He committed to do so. It was a fair vote that people had. Um, that said, I don't think that means we always need to have these yes and no case committees. I mean, they're expensive, 20, 20, about $25 million. They cost all up back in 1999. That was the only time we've done that. There's no other referendum that's happened. And I think the default is that um, people should pay their own way. They do so for election campaigns, except for a small amount of public funding that goes to political parties. And I think the evidence is the no case is getting its message out. Um, we don't need taxpayer funds to back either side. There's no shortage of debate. People are speaking freely. And I think that suggests that democracy is working as it should. I would agree with you that the question whether funding should be given to both sides I think is a matter for the government and the, eventually the parliament. I don't think there should be a right to be funded. Although we, I, I also don't think there should be a funding of uh, political parties at elections. I think that's wrong. I think the whole concept is wrong because it uh, entrenches the status quo in relation to elections so that the Labour Party and the Liberal Party and the National Party are entrenched and any new parties find it very difficult to 
yeah. become established because they have that great disadvantage. But They've got to magnify those benefits for yeah. That's right. One thing I didn't like previously was what we, we called it the garbage tin amendment. And that was instead of the yes, no booklet going to every voter, and I agree mm -hmm. that perhaps they should be able to opt out and receive it uh, online if they want to. But instead of it going to every voter, it now, now goes to every house, every address. Mm -hmm. That means if you've got a number of people in the same address, even three or four, which would be a family with grown-up children, children over 18, uh, that would mean it would come to the householder, it would be addressed to the householder. And we said that that would inevitably mean that the, the yes-no booklet wouldn't be read and it would end up in the garbage tin. Do you think... Uh, yeah, look, at it. I think um, it's certainly less accessible when it goes to every household, but I'm comfortable with that. Partly it's just taxpayers' money. I think it's costing us over $10 million to send the pamphlet out this time. That's a lot of money that could be spent on something else. I think it's reasonable to send it to households. And for me, this is where I would disagree with you. I think... Personally, I don't think the pamphlet's the right way of communicating to people anyway, anymore. We do need a means of doing it, but the idea of sending 2,000 word yes and 2,000 word no cases to voters in the mail was the best idea they could come up with in 1912. And that was when it was put in, before radio, before television, before social media. And I think the government was right to say, let's drop the pamphlet, but was wrong not to put something better in its place. That, uh, Yes, reach people who do want hard copy, but frankly, reach many people who will never read the hard copy and who just won't get access to the arguments, I think, in a more accessible way. It's good, isn't it, though, to have the central arguments, the arguments on which the yes people, the yes committee, the yes, those who've voted yes in the parliament uh, mm. argue is, uh, are there essential points? And those are the no case. So in a succinct document, you have everything. Uh, there can be a debate about delivery. And many people will say, well, we're very happy to have that delivered uh, but through the internet. I find it more difficult to read documents which are on the internet than to read them when I have them in print. And I, I don't know what you hmm. think, perhaps it's my age, but I think reading in print well, I think that's fine. I think, easier. David, you should be able to get a print copy. I think that's absolutely fine. Anyone who wants a print copy should get one. I just don't think we should hit everyone in Australia with a print copy, including the many people who never want a print copy and the young people who'd actually prefer to read it online. It's, it's a bit of an environmental catastrophe, if nothing else, all this paper that's going to go to waste. So I, I think it's, for me, it's just, it shouldn't just be only print. It should be multiple sources. And and that means reaching and communicating to people in the form they're comfortable with. And you're comfortable with paper, that's great. Others aren't, that should be catered for as well. And it's also not just though the form, it's the arguments themselves. And I also have a problem with the pamphlet. There are no real controls, as you know, what can go in. It's often the case, it's wild exaggeration, yes or no, there's no requirement for truth. And the pamphlets themselves, often don't give people the basic information they need. Um, and that I think we do need good civics education. You pointed to 1999, but you need information that lets people make sense of these arguments to cast an informed vote. In, uh, in 1999, uh, we, we argued that uh, we already, many of us argued, and Michael Kirby put this into the Charter of Australians for Constitutional Monarchy, that uh, 
we are already a republic, we're a crowned republic, and what is being offered is a politician's republic. And we also argue that we already have an Australian as head of state, the Governor General, and we pointed out, for example, in 1983, when Sir Ninian Stephen was going to go to Jakarta, the Indonesians, no doubt, uh, uh, tainted by the, uh, the embassy in Jakarta who were telling him that uh, the governor general wasn't the head of state, the Indonesians decided to receive him not as the head of state and Sir Ninian, with the support of the Hawke government, canceled the trip. The Indonesians apologized and he went there the next year as the Australian head of state and was received in duly as the Australian head of state. So we say we're already a republic and uh, we have an Australian as head of state. So we say, why change that? Well, and I suppose I can't agree with you on those, not surprisingly, David. And uh, I don't think we can be a republic so long as the apex of our political system is a monarch. Um, I think we are a constitutional monarchy. I mean, as your organisation, Australians for Constitutional Monarchy, would attest through its name, you're right, there are some republican elements within that system, many in fact, but the symbolism and reality is that we have a king of Australia and I don't see that king as in any way not being our head of state. I mean, the king is the head of state. They're, they're the apex of the system and if it was the opposite, it would be frankly just a bit odd that we have a governor general who could be our head of state yet is actually just the representative of a monarch. Uh, it, it would be incoherent if that was the case. So. For me, I would say we just need to embrace the fact we have a king who is our head of state. People can support that or not. Uh, and in the end, the question for a republic is, do we make that symbolic change? Um, in essence, we're independent. I accept that. But do people want the symbolic change with a president rather than a governor general answering to ultimately a foreign monarch? The, uh, the Australian Republican movement, which seems to be the principal organised, in fact, they were they came together immediately after the Labour Party changed its platform and decided that we should become a republic. They're very close to the Labour Party. And uh, in the models, the model that they presented, the winning model at the convention, which John Howard put to the people, and also in their latest model, in both of those, they effectively have neutralised the reserve powers of the Governor-General in the model which was presented to the people in 1999, the president could be dismissed by the prime minister without notice, without grounds and without any right of appeal. He was therefore reduced. He couldn't exercise. He couldn't, he couldn't do what Sir John Kerr did in uh, 1975. Now, in their latest model, they've also effectively removed most of, I think there's one reserve power left, but they've taken away the very concept of the reserve powers, that, that president will be elected because they believe, I think wrongly, that the Australian people want to, want to have an elected uh, president, mm. uh, but, but an elected president with no powers. Uh, isn't this, it's more than just symbolic, it's really changing the nature of a very good office which we have at the moment. And is there a way of, of uh, uh, changing the constitutional monarchy without preserving what we have now. Well, I think, David, you're right. The ARM is suggesting for a Republican president without powers, but that's much better than a Republican president with powers. 
because we don't want a president who can act as a counterweight with a separate mandate to the Prime Minister of the day. It must be symbolic. And you're right in focusing on the reserve powers, those extraordinary powers to be exercised in a crisis that can mean a Prime Minister might be dismissed. Personally, I think it's well beyond time that we codified those. We wrote them down, we made clear when they can be exercised, because whatever people's view of 1975 was and the dismissal of the Whitlam government, the fact that it could create such division and that so many people could disagree on whether there was a power in the first place to dismiss a prime minister where the Senate had blocks apply, that's a, that's a flaw and a problem within our system that should be fixed. And the way to fix it is to be explicit about what the head of state, if it's a president, can actually do rather than living it to constitutional lawyers like me and guesswork. Well, the situation in 1975 wasn't caused by the constitutional activities of the Governor-General. It was caused by two very obstinate politicians. Firstly, Gough Whitlam not doing what he insisted when uh, Labor was in opposition, and he had Lionel Murphy table a document, I think, showing 69 times. When the, when the Labor Party had uh, tried to have the budget stopped or supplies stopped in the Senate, that uh, they, the argument was that the government should uh, go to the people or the Prime Minister resign and leave it to the Governor-General to find somebody else to head of government. Now, uh, it, it was really, really a political problem rather than a constitutional problem, which led to 1975. And well, I think that's right. I think it's a good point. I, I think that's my argument. In a sense, it was a political problem, but it became a constitutional crisis. And, and that's because we have a governor general, an umpire, but nobody's sure what the rules are. So having a governor general who can exercise powers that haven't been written down where people disagree on their scope, it means there is that ongoing potential that a political, strong political disagreement will lead to something more. And I think that's what happened in 75, and uh, it could happen again unless we're clear about what the powers of the umpire are. It's very, one of the dangers of uh, codifying the reserve powers is you then lock them in and they, they don't have the flexibility. The, the very concept of reserve powers is enormous, enormous flexibility. For example, had Gough Whitlam uh, tried to have Sir John Kerr dismissed by the Queen, it wasn't clear how quickly she would act, whether she would act, what advice she would seek. All of this was all very vague and that really assisted the system. It made the system work. You're right in the sense that if you, if you had an elected president with the reserve powers and with all the powers of the Governor General, if you just look at them in the, in the plain print of the constitution. We, we warned when, when, when Malcolm Turnbull first proposed to have a president elected for a term, elected by the parliament, but for a term, we said, we said that this was effectively bringing to Australia the French Fifth Republic. It was only when uh, Doug, uh, when, uh, when uh, Justice McGarvey, who was at the convention, he'd been the governor of Victoria, he came in and agreed with us that Malcolm Turnbull pulled that away and came back with the, the model which went to the referendum. It's very difficult to, to really repeat what we have. What we have works very well, but you, think, you don't think it worked well in 1975, do you? No, I don't think it did work well, and it showed that when a crisis emerged, our system was not in good shape to resolve that crisis without 
in the end leading to further division because what you need is actually an ability to solve a crisis where people understand agree with the rules and see it's a fair resolution but we've never we never had that outcome um, I do agree with you though that if you are going to write the rules down you've got to get it right when it comes to the dismissal of a governor general uh, the timing I think that was a flaw in the model that went forward in 1999 that the no case was very effective in exploiting but for good reason it was a problem that the president could be dismissed so easily. And then in future votes, uh, the onus is on Republicans to draft something that works, that is safe, and doesn't give rise to those same concerns. Well, I see that we're running out of time and you have a commitment, and I mustn't uh, deprive you of that because you are the Deputy Vice-Chancellor and no doubt have important things to do thank you. there. And uh, I, I must thank you for being generous with your time, George. And uh, I look forward to debating you, discussing with you again, if uh, you're available, because I think this, this issue obviously is not going to go away. Uh, let's, in my case, I hope the voice gets up and we're talking about this a lot over the next three years. David, bring on the Republic, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Professor George Williams has been very kind. And uh, this is uh, Save the Nation on ADH-TV and until next time, thank you.